we've had definitely a lot of challenges here at Percent, right? Like I think in, what was it, 2019, 2020, we had like two weeks of payroll left. Uh, so we had to figure out what we we're going to do. And we proposed it to the company internally. We we're saying, hey, how do you want to handle this? Like, do we skip payroll for two weeks and pay you back after we close this round? Or like, how do you want to handle it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Nelson Chu, CEO and co-founder of Percent, a global leader in financial infrastructure solutions that brings transparency and efficiency to lenders and credit transactions. Founded in 2018, Percent has powered almost a billion dollars in transaction volume and has raised capital from B Capital, Coinbase, 10X Capital, and many more. In this episode, we discuss how Percent aims to transform private credit markets and their strategy to gain market share by expanding through adjacencies, the strength of private credit in the face of a market downturn and why the asset class is very recession resilient. Nelson is a repeat founder and he shares lessons on how to build a culture of accountability and transparency that drives employee retention, steps percent is taking to bridge DeFi and traditional finance, why New York City is the best city in the world to build a fintech company, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Nelson from Percent. All right. Well, Nelson, first of all, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm good and really excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm I'm the one who's excited. I I know that you've been a listener uh, for some time, and so it's it's great to to have you on. And then you know, I hear about your background because I know you're doing, you and the team are doing some very interesting things at, at Percent. So maybe let's let's get started to just kind of learn about your, your entrepreneurial background. Yeah, absolutely. So I did uh, spend a very short stint in traditional finance, which I think, you know, doing a capital markets fintech company, that becomes almost like requirement to really kind of uh, go through the ropes and, and live through that process. Uh, so I, I started my career at Merrill Lynch, so that'll date me a little bit, uh, in 2009, which is also going to date me a little bit because that's a very interesting time to be joining traditional finance. Uh, that very quickly became Bank America, so I stayed there for about a year and a half. And then I left that to join the buy side because everybody said the buy side is better than the sell side. So I was like, okay, sure. Why don't I join the, the largest buy side shop on the street? And I lasted a whopping one year to the day at BlackRock before I said, you know what? I'm done with finance. I'm never doing uh, finance ever again. And obviously, famous last words, here I am running a capital markets fintech company. Uh, but at that point, you know, I left that to really kind of start my own thing, start my own journey, doing something in the, uh, the New York tech ecosystem. This was like, you know, 2012-ish, give or take. And it was really taking off. And so it was a very exciting time to be there. And so I tried some things, failed at some things, and ultimately what I landed on was really building a strategy consulting company that helped other founders build their companies from the ground up. So we gave them many resources to get get off the ground, whether it was their pitch deck, their marketing website, branding, uh, parts of the V1s of their products, 
could be like introductions to VCs. It was just like an all-inclusive thing for them, right? So we had some pretty good clients and case studies coming out of that. Uh, one of them in the crypto side was BlockFi, and the other one was uh, on the insurtech side, Mulberry. And they were just, you know, great examples of what clients could do with us behind the scenes, helping them as best that we can. And so from there, that got me really thinking, you know, okay, like we have a team that can build product. We have uh, good ideas. We have access to VCs. Why not do things the old-fashioned venture-backed way? And that's really how Percent came to be. We saw an opportunity in the market, the gap that we saw that was there, and we took it or attempted to take it before completely pivoting the company to where we are today. That's that's interesting. So you, you kind of, you were helping so many founders and then you realize, hey, I, I can do this myself as well. Uh, so Nelson, one of the things that I like about this, this show is uh, we get to hear from experienced founders, people who are doing it for a second, third time, sometimes even more. more. I was mentioning offline most recently, I interviewed Mike Cagney and he, of course, extremely successful. He helped build SoFi, now he's building Figure. And we talked about the lessons that he learned uh, in his first stint. I, I know that it was a different company than Percent, uh, but still, you were building a firm. So maybe tell us about uh, My Support, that was the name, and some of the key lessons that you learned there that you're applying today at Percent. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, any startup is a journey. And I think the development of an entrepreneur is also a journey, right? You don't know everything from day one and you have to live it. You have to develop pattern recognition. You have to get just real world experiences. Um, so you bring up a company that was almost like a incubated company of my consulting company that we had. Uh, so my support was a healthcare company at the time. Uh, and, you know, one of the most difficult markets to penetrate, without a doubt, right? I think as much as I would love to uh, try and improve the U.S. healthcare system, that is a tough go. And we learned that the hard way. Uh, so my support had a great idea. It was focused on Medicaid specifically, so more of the low-income population uh, and uh, the, giving them long-term care and support, right? So being able to actually match caretakers with um, people who needed care and long-term care. And the founder was really well-established. Uh, he was the youngest person ever confirmed to the Senate. Uh, he had great access to insurance companies. The company had a contract from Anthem before the, we even had a product. And so it was all kind of said all the right things, looked and smelled perfect, right? And I had known him from, from my high school days. Uh, the problem was it didn't raise enough money. And so healthcare in general needs a lot of money to be able to be successful because of how bureaucratic and long things take on that side. And on top of that, they didn't really build out more of the technology team. There was a lot of business side, right? And that's not enough when you're building a tech company. And so ultimately, those are all life lessons and learning lessons uh, that just you know, added a lot of value to my own career and things that I learned. And we brought that here to present as well in terms of just the focus we have on technology and building something more on that side. It's not just about you know the business side and the BD side. And so my support ultimately sold, which was great. Um, it sold to private equity uh, for not a lot of money, but I can say I sold to private equity, so that's a good start. Uh, but outside of that, even on the consulting side, there was a lot of lessons, right? Uh, consulting is naturally a margin-driven business, and I always love talking to founders who have been on the service side and that sort of uh, profitability-focused side who then go on to found venture-backed companies because they do look at the world differently, and they have an eye towards, like, how do I make this into a profitable business and not just grow, grow, grow at all costs, right? And so on that side, though, there is a double 
double-edged sword to profitability, which is that when you hire people, in so many instances, because of just low margins that you're probably running early on, you have to hire for need and not for potential, right? So we had a fantastic team at the consulting company, but they were very young. And so they required a lot more management, a lot more oversight, just to make sure they can grow in their careers as well. And so there wasn't as much a focus on culture. And now here at Percent, that we've grown to, you know, we're close to 60 people at this point. We're at the point where we've only hired for potential. And these are, it's an incredibly smart team who have a ton of potential to grow and also have had great careers in their own right prior to joining. That it's all about how do you build a culture of accountability, transparency, and one that is really focused on making it a fantastic place to work with the potential for growth in the future. Uh, we want everyone to stay here as long as they can, as long as they're willing to have us. And it's the reason why our retention rate is so high here at Percent. We've only had less than a handful of people leave in the four years that we've been at this company. And several of them had, I think, life-changing uh, decisions to make for themselves that I encourage them to take take that, right? So um, it's been a good run here. And uh, it's a lot of lessons that I learned from just doing it, trying it, and failing uh, before uh, and then bring it here. How, how would you describe your mission at Percent? Yeah, so I think if you look at this market that we're going after, which uh, we'll talk about in a little bit, I'm sure, uh, it's the private credit market, right? And private credit is a very, I would say, niche asset class that most people don't realize what it is, but they've probably interacted with it on a regular basis. So you're, this is a fintech podcast. I'm sure you've talked about buy now, pay later in some way, shape, or form as it's been all the rage. Buy now, pay later is very much a um, private credit type opportunity, right? There's no public company raising debt. It's private individuals looking to get um, some sort of loan-ish uh, from a lender. And so it's all kind of privately done. So that is private credit, right? And our mission is to really transform this market for the better and basically make it more efficient, more profitable, increase the velocity of transactions, and do it at a fraction of the cost. That is the name of the game. And when our benchmark is Excel, phone calls, and emails, as the only way this industry has operated for the last 20, 30 years, I think fortunately the bar is pretty low and we've already pushed it very far. And so when all is said and done, if we can build the Bloomberg of private credit markets, because Bloomberg, as you know, focused on public credit, uh, if we can do that here, we'll have done our job. And we'll, made our, we'll have made our dent in this $7 trillion universe that we're playing in. Yeah, it's it's a true tech play, right? And when it comes to fintech, you're really uh, heavy on the tech, right? But uh, but I get it. It's it's absolutely a, a fintech, a financial technology company, um, and but that involves you know you're building all of these things up front, and I'm also guessing you are you need your clients to adopt a new technology. And, and do things, you know, the new way versus the old way. And a lot of them, you know, I know a lot of private credit folks, they've been doing it for decades. So what's been the, the biggest challenge convincing your customers to to adopt your technology? It's a, it's a great question. And we struggle with that internally all the time. And it does shape our overall strategy as we've evolved it, right? So if you break down any sort of private credit transaction or really any credit transaction, it's, it's almost like four core components, right? Five of you kind of combine if you split out one of them. Uh, but essentially, you have to source a borrower, right? Who needs to, who's looking for debt capital. You have to create some sort of investable product. So you structure the transaction. You then probably market it or syndicate it out to somebody who has money in order to kind of get capital from them. 
And then after the deal is done, you're going to need to surveillance and monitor the performance and service it and handle cash flows and all that stuff. So it's our, it's our five S's, right? Sourcing, structuring, syndicating, servicing, and surveillancing. And so when you look at that five-step process, what is the biggest pain point that we know everybody has, no matter what? And we started there, right? So we knew surveillance was by far the biggest pain point because in this market where every borrower reports whatever it is they want to report out of their, their spreadsheet, their APIs, their system, whatever it may be, it's pretty ugly. And so a big part of our effort was to standardize the reporting coming out of these borrowers so anybody who's investing in it, anybody who's diligencing these guys are going to look at the same data through and through, right? And so you can actually make relative comparisons possible. So by starting with surveillance, we had a hook, right? We had people that said, okay, this is materially better than Excel phone calls and emails. It's saving me a lot of time. It's not that expensive. Why don't I start there? And like, I'm happy to try this out and adopt it. And now we're getting paid uh, by various different credit funds to be able to actually do surveillance on not just their percent portfolio, but their non-percent portfolio as well because they love what we've done for the present side, so why not do it for everything else? That's fantastic. And then now we're just gonna move further and further up market, right? So if I already have you in the door for surveillance, I know you have a problem with syndication, right? I know you're syndicating a lot of pieces, I know it's coming in via email and phone calls, I know you don't wanna deal with that anymore, so why don't we launch an intelligent syndication tool that actually probably helps you make a little bit more money along the way if you can syndicate at a cheaper price than what it's worth to you, right? So then we added syndication, we bolted that on. So you're kind of seeing where we're headed here, but realistically structuring is probably next on the docket and then maybe sourcing by the end and we're going backwards, but it is sort of really understanding the core pain points of the clients that we have and then figuring out what is it going to take to get them to cross. And we've delivered that because we've done a lot of these transactions ourselves. You know, we've done close to a billion dollars with a volume, 335 transactions. It goes a long way towards learning what the pain points are and then solving our own problems, recognize that if we can solve our own problems, everybody else definitely is having those same problems. And so they'll be willing to adopt it from there. No, I love it. You're starting with a known big pain point and they're expanding uh, through adjacencies, right? And I've, I've interviewed a couple of folks, uh, founders, leaders with similar um, strategies. And one of the tools that they use to increase adoption was actually they raised equity from some of their potential or actual clients. And one example that comes to mind is um, Symphony uh, doing that with Goldman. Sure. Another company called Contigo actually did it also with Goldman. Uh, so, yeah, curious if that has also been your strategy. Yeah, so I would say thus far, we've had a very institutional cap table in many respects, but not necessarily on the private credit side at the moment. So for example, right, uh, we do have the deputy CIO of Guggenheim as one of our investors. We have the former president of E-Trade on our board. Uh, we have the former co-CEO of a $20 billion structured credit fund on our board. Uh, we have Dick Parsons, the former chairman of City, as an investor. So it's very, very institutionally oriented, which is fantastic. Uh, but it hasn't been quite so client related at the moment because we haven't had up until recently technology that is tailor-made for the private credit markets at an institutional level. And so now that we do, we're very much keen to explore sort of getting those types of strategic investors in the door. And this upcoming round that we're doing is definitely in that capacity, right? So we've gotten a lot of interest from private credit funds who've looked at us at the debt level and said, this is great tech, this is great product, 
Uh, are you looking for equity? Like, are you raising this at this moment? Because if you are, let's talk. Uh, and that's become and has led to very natural, organic conversations, which is the way we like it, right? I don't want to be doing outbounds here. Having them being have a vested interest and them reaching out is exactly where we want to be. Yeah, and it gives you the the validation that you always want. Um, so, Nelson, we all know what's been going on with the markets, public markets, Tech has taken a, a significant beating over the last quarter. How how about private credit? Um, how has it traded uh, over the last few months? So I am so incredibly biased here, but I love private credit. And so uh, it has been a fantastic asset class. And it's one that we'd like to consider as almost recession resilient, right? And I'll explain why. So when you look at if we're going into a market downturn, obviously public equities is the first to go, right? That is the most liquid. It's the almost like the most accurate bellwether of what type of market and economy we're in. Uh, when you look at public debt, um, you know, it's, I would say, a little bit more interesting because public debt is almost very contingent and reliant upon rates, right? So a lot of these public debt issuers, uh, name, name any large public company, they actually don't have to go back out to market because the maturities are so long, right? So these are 30-year maturities. And so they're betting that, yeah, realistically, you know, if I were to just hold for another three or four years, rates will probably come down again. And that's when I'll go back out to raise more money. And so that's been leading to a point where year over year, call it first half of 2021 versus first half of 2022, there's a 75% decline in public debt issuance just because people don't go out to market, right? And on the public equity side, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, but like obviously the big companies have done okay, but you look at like Robinhood, they're down, you know, what is like 50, 60%, right? And so it's very challenging for those small guys. And that translates to private and venture equity as well with, you know, big write downs on some of these companies that are close to going public. So on the private debt side, these aren't 30 year maturities, right? There's gonna be your one year, two year, three year maturities. And so you have a ton of borrowers coming out to market out of necessity because they have to. Otherwise, there's no choice. They're not going to grow. And so they have to kind of take the rate that's given to them, which means that in this environment, what used to be nine is now 12. What is now 12% is now 15%. What is 15 is now 18%. And so they have to get what they get, right? That's it. And in our business, in our industry, and in our company, we make money off of the fact that there is interest and demand for private credit. That's it, right? It's not a transaction fee. It's all tied to how much is outstanding in our ecosystem. And if that's the case, I, I love where we're at. And so investors now have the opportunity to get higher yield at comparable risk levels from what it was before. Uh, the borrowers themselves can continue to raise capital in this environment because there's always going to be a price that someone's willing to take. Uh, and at the end of the day, the underwriters who are doing these transactions have never been busier uh, because of the frequency of deals going out to market. So I love private credit. It's why we're in it. And I think, you know, the uh, the heyday of a lot of other fintech uh, sectors was pre this market downturn. And now it's private credit's time to shine. Nelson, I'm reading a, a book on Bill Gross on, on PIMCO, and it talks about how, you know, bonds, which is that... Uh, weren't traded 50 years ago. It, they basically almost created the market and popularized it. Is private credit also traded as frequently 
as bonds. Uh, maybe explain that dynamic. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because so many times we like to compare where we are in the private credit life cycle uh, and their evolution as what high yield was in the 80s, right? Because high yield back in the 80s, there was nothing there. It was just sort of a amorphous, you know, some people were doing it. It was very esoteric and there was no market standards, right? Every deal was done differently. It was kind of done under the table. It was behind the scenes, whatever it may be. And then when everybody decided, look, these are going to be the standards. This is how ratings agencies are going to rate it. This is who, who buys it. This is how we're going to trade it. This is how we're going to settle it. That's when the high yield market took off, right? It became what was, you know, a couple tens of millions of dollars into the multi-billion dollar industry that it is today. Private debt, already is seven trillion plus, right? So that's already a good starting point as any. And it has succeeded in so many ways despite itself and not because of itself. Excel, phone calls, emails, that doesn't help you grow, right? Lack of liquidity doesn't really help you grow. And all that comes from the fact that things aren't priced properly. Like there's no visibility into it because underlying performance is not standardized. And so part of what we're trying to do here is create that data standard around performance so that things can actually be priced properly, things can actually be seen and monitored on a regular basis, and it's making all the difference in the world. It gets investors comfortable. It's all those things that you've come to expect for your public market investments, for your private market investments, for your public debt investments. We're bringing here to private debt, and it's going to unlock a ton of transparency. And then with transparency comes liquidity, which is what we're looking forward to doing. So you're, you're bringing up a, a very interesting point, and that's how you're using data and mining data to actually produce better outcomes. Maybe talk a little bit more about this and whether this is something that your clients are asking for. Yeah, we have accidentally become a data company, or maybe intentionally, depending on who you talk to here. Uh, but I think in many respects, you know, we didn't set out to do that. But when we were launching this company for the very first time in 2018, 2019, we realized that, man, as an alternative investment platform, there was no workflow to speak of. And it's why we pivoted to being an infrastructure provider. Uh, we were building our own order book management systems. So oh, Google Sheets was essentially our first deal we ever did. We just tracked it there and we knew that was not scalable and there was no tech to really buy that's in building order books. Uh, we're building our own compliance attestation tools. So instead of, we're sending out type forms, right? To be able to get uh, borrowers to actually come back and say, yes, I attest to this. Here's this upload, things like that. And the most terrifying, we were building our own asset surveillance tools because there was no way to actually get this information on a regular basis. So that was what made us the light bulb go off and say, look, if I can't compare one borrower against a different borrower, what am I doing here? Like this is incredibly difficult to do, right? And this is incredibly difficult to actually mark these investments up or down based on how they're doing. So that's when we decided to embark on the very, very difficult journey of saying we are going to standardize and normalize the $7 trillion private debt industry, essentially. And what that means is that every asset class within private debt, whether it's small business lending, consumer loans, factoring invoices, equipment leasing, litigation finance, corporate debt, they all have their own data ontologies that you have to map to. And you essentially ingest the data from the borrowers, map it to that ontology. And at that point, you can spit out all these reports that lets you compare one borrower against another borrower based on pure performance. And that is a monumental effort that we've made pretty good headway on. Uh, we published over 4,800 surveillance reports at this point. We've uh, analyzed 4.7 billion data points. Like there's a lot behind the scenes here and our data team is like three people. So we've done a lot here in terms of scalability that we are very excited to roll out to the broader market as a result. 
let, let's talk about some of the surprises that you've learned along the way. I mean, it's it's been already uh, several years since you launched Percent, and you know, uh, the life of a founder is is full of challenges. Uh, so maybe talk about some of the most surprising things you've learned over the last couple of years. I think it's almost like peeling back an onion in many respects around this industry because we realized early on that there were some definite key pain points we we're trying to solve for, right? And then as we dug deeper and deeper, realized that the, the pain goes a lot deeper than we thought um, and it is so entrenched in the industry. And in many respects, as a founder, as a startup, you constantly just ask why, right? Like, why does it have to be this way? Why? And when everyone tells you, well, that's the way it's always been done, it's the founder and the startup's job to say, no, that's not the case. We can, there are better ways to do this for sure. And I think in so many respects, this company is a right place, right time situation where there is so much core fintech infrastructure built out to build on top of for us to be able to be successful. And so in terms of just pure surprises, I think the level of analog and sort of manual nature of this industry is, I think, continuing to surprise us to this day. Uh, but I think on the upside and the pleasant surprise was that we did not waste our time doing those billion dollars worth of transactions, those 335 different deals. Like we did it and we built things that we knew would be helpful for us. And then somehow, in some way, shape, or form, the universe sorts itself out. We sold it to clients, and they said, yes, you've solved a huge pain point for us. So that was a very pleasant surprise that we're continuing to see to this day. But it's what's made the past three years of building this behind the scenes so rewarding because you're seeing it all come to life. And that's always one of the best parts of the startup journey when the clients adopt things for the very first time. It's always very, very exciting. Nelson, I understand that most of your clients are are very traditional credit funds. Uh, there's been some new funds emerging that are kind of tapping DeFi pools. Uh, is this a, an angle of the industry that you are working with? Interesting question. Um, so we have tried very hard uh, over the course of the life of this company to become more of a blockchain company. And uh, we've fallen on our face many times because Ethereum gas fees got too high because institutional credit funds didn't want to transact in USDC or the deal will be dead. And so we've tried so many different ways to do this. Uh, but most recently, we actually just launched a um, or helped launch a credit protection product for our invested instruments. Right. And so what effectively is and this was you know fully registered with DTCC, um, but it is a exotic, almost like credit default swap in some respects where there is a treasury reserve that's being built up, uh, where our products are paying reserve payments, uh, kind of a portion of the interest over to that, that uh, treasury reserve. And then the treasury reserve is also using some elements of DeFi to be able to kind of increase that reserve, right? And the higher the reserve, the more coverage we can get, the more interest from investors, the more interest from investors, you get more underwriters who want to tap into that money, and you have a very nice flywheel on our hands which is sort of what we're looking to do. So this company is called Anzen. Uh, we helped them get off the ground. We're advising the company. And we launched, we closed two deals with them already that's paying reserve payments, right? Which is very cool. So with these DeFi credit funds that have come out, many of them have a requirement that they have to invest in some sort of 
crypto or DeFi-esque instrument, right? And so that in of itself has made our product naturally as a result slightly more palatable because uh, before if there was no blockchain element to it, make, it would make it very difficult to invest in a real world yielding asset, right? So now more than ever, I think we are uh, more attractive to that audience and we're going to start exploring that. Uh, but historically to date, it's been challenging just because there wasn't that much of a blockchain interface uh, to what we were doing. So I'm guessing you expect more growth from that side of the house. I think so, especially as DeFi yields are now yielding lower than U.S. Treasuries. Uh, they're going to need to find yield from somewhere. And I'd like to think that, you know, consistent real world yield is going to be a good complement to whatever they're doing on that side. There's a there's a lot of talk between what's the best city to build a company, at least in the U.S., and you know, I, I had the interview, I had the chance to interview the mayor of Miami and obviously he's rooting for Miami and there's there's SF, of course, with its historic dominance. You're building in New York. Um, what's it like being a founder in New York City? You're getting all my biases out today. Uh, so obviously <laughs> very biased towards private credit and also very biased towards New York uh, in, in many different ways. I've been in the city for oof, probably 11 years now at this point, something like that, maybe close to 12. I think after you pass 10, you're allowed to say you're a real New Yorker, so I'm officially a real New Yorker. Uh, but I've, I've seen this city through its ups and downs, and I've never seen, and, and traveled all over the world to many different cities, I've never seen a city with the energy of New York and the almost like the serendipity of bumping into people that you may know. I've bumped into so many people on the subway in that car at that hour at random times, and you just kick up a conversation right, that you haven't talked to in a while. So that is just the most wonderful feeling. But on top of that, as a fintech company, and specifically as a capital markets fintech company, which is very, very specific within fintech, uh, New York is the best city for that, without a doubt. You know, everybody, every major credit fund, every major finance shop has their home here. And I would say a lot of the VCs who understand capital markets well are here as well. And so it makes no sense for us to build anywhere else than what I like to think New York of as the greatest city on earth. Could not agree more there with you. You're also biased. Yes. <laughs> uh, and and so uh, I, I was also mentioning, Nelson, that uh, we do have a good number of founders tuning in. And for those in the earlier stages or those about to take uh, the leap and about to leave maybe their their corporate job you know, or their uh, just any type of job and about to start a, a company, you know, and any... Any lessons you'd like to, to share? Are there any common misconceptions uh, that you found uh, from people, uh, all founders? Yeah, there's a couple. Uh, one is that you know the, the market today is a little bit wild, uh, and VCs have definitely pared back, right? But if you look back in history, some of the greatest companies in the world were built in times of um, downturns, in times of stress, and all of that. And so... For someone who is looking to leave their corporate job or early on in the process, don't be you know, disheartened by that. Right, This is the time to really put your head down because there is so much opportunity out there for people to look for new options to purchase your product because they're looking to do something and get something for cheaper. Uh, there's never been more opportunity to hire great talent, which you wouldn't be able to get before. So it is actually a very exciting time to build. If you've already raised some capital, uh, run it for as long as you can. But if you can come out of it, and you can survive the next, call it 12 to 18 months, you will be extremely well positioned to take advantage of everything that's happened in that time frame. 
for me personally, you know, having built a services company prior to this, uh, you see a lot of ups and downs, right? And you run razor thin margins for a long time. And so I use those five, six years of my life to really, I think, hone what I'd like to consider my best superpower, which is that I just don't get stressed, uh, which is actually very, very useful for starting a company and being a founder. Uh, but my advice to entrepreneurs is one that I've always lived by, which is nothing's ever as bad as it seems. And nothing's also ever as good as it seems either. So, you know, you'll be going through days where, oh, the VC you thought was going to invest in you ended up backing out. A client that you thought was going to sign their contract on dotted line said they couldn't get it through approval process. It's not the end of the world. You will be fine. Your team is still there behind you. The sun still rises tomorrow. It's going to be fine. Go out and fight another day. But on top of that, nothing's ever as good as it seems either, right? Like there are things and partnerships that you're working on for that you just is so positive it's going to close. And then it just doesn't. And like, that's okay. That's part of the process. And so just keep a level head, keep fighting. And um, good things come to those who hustle, who fight, and just live to fight another day. Any techniques that you use to control stress? Living by that mantra and actually embodying that on a regular basis means that I don't meditate, I don't do yoga, I don't do any of those things. I literally just, you know, let it all roll off you. And it's the reason why we've had definitely a lot of challenges here at Percent, right? Like I think in, what was it, 2019, 2020, we had like two weeks of payroll left. Uh, so we had to figure out what we we're going to do. And we proposed it to the company internally. We we're saying, hey, how do you want to handle this? Like, do we skip payroll for two weeks and pay you back after we close this round? Or like, how do you want to handle it? And we all agreed that, look, let's just try and call capital early, uh, see who's willing to bite. And we took in a couple hundred thousand dollars from investors who really believed in us. We hit payroll, raised another round of financing. Here we are today. Like, it's going to be okay. So it's just that level head and just see it all the way through. It's, it's all going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Curious about that episode because I've heard similar stories from founders. Where, how was the reaction from the team when you told them? I think the ability to be transparent, we've done it multiple times throughout this process, right? Through COVID, through that period of time, through the fundraise process, that's the most important thing. If we're, many of these people, actually, honestly, my entire team has the ability to get another job at a bigger company, probably paying more, right? And so what is the hook here? The hook is that we are going to build something that's going to make a difference in this world, that they are going to have a leave a lasting mark on an industry that we're in, right? So if you can, if they believe in that already, they have a vested interest in seeing this be successful, just be honest with them. Just be honest about what's going on and how it's all going to evolve and your strategy to approach that, solving that problem. And you'll be fine, right? Like, and they'll be fine as well because they believe in you, they believe in the company, they believe in the mission. And so honesty is by far the best policy. Don't hide anything uh, because that's only going to blow back in your face uh, when, when something comes out or somebody you know, leaks it to the press or whatever it may be. It's just not worth it at the end of the day. Love it. Love it. So Nelson, before I let you go, uh, when you think of your entrepreneurial journey the last several years, uh, are there any influential names uh, that come to mind? Yeah, I, I think I am the embodiment of everybody who's ever advised me in the past, right? And that's they shape you into who you are, you learn from them, and they give you their pattern recognition, so you can do all that. So 
First and foremost, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that my dad helped me very much in getting me to where I am today. He was an entrepreneur in his own right. He had co-founded a company with a bunch of friends in the, the airline space, crew planning. And so it's kind of a software company effectively. But he was the one who allowed me to experiment when I was a kid, even when I should have been focused on academics, when I definitely was not focused on academics. He gave me the opportunity to try and tinker and, and work on the creative side of me. Um, throughout the early parts of my startup journey, I had an advisor who I think is at Techstars now, uh, who actually just, you know, told me how much I didn't know about the world and how much I didn't know about startups and how, you know, how to actually navigate this environment. As I was building a consulting company, um, the, I was working with someone who was the, one of the co-founders of Fandango, vice chairman of Bridgewater, and he really shaped my ability to understand how to build companies that resonate and align incentives and interests across various different counterparties, which is very much coming to bear here in this three-sided market that we've built. So all of these people, everyone on this team as well, even our management team, our, our entire team, have been instrumental in helping me better understand how to navigate uh, this startup on this journey and just would not be here without them. Nelson, can't thank you enough for stopping by. Uh, fascinating stuff. And I'm sure uh, we're going to be hearing a lot more from, from Percent. So thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Nelson Chu, CEO of Percent. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.